Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show of a very special guest. Her name is Cynthia Chung, and she's just published a book. I read most of it. The title of the book is The Empire on Which the Black Sun Never Set, The Birth of International Fascism and the Anglo-American Foreign Policy. And it was published November 6, 2022. Today is uh, November 30th. There will be two volumes. So this is a first volume, and it's available now on Kindle and paperback. And she's also been a researcher and, and co-author of a three-volume series titled The Clash of the Two Americas. Uh, the titles are, one, The Unfinished Symphony, two, Open and Close, First Closed Systems Collide, and three, The Birth of a Eurasian Manifest Destiny. And that was with her husband, Matthew Errett, who, E-H-R-E-T, who I also interviewed about Canadian history. So you can go back and I'll put that link into our, my interview with him in these show notes. And she has a substack that you can read her work at, and it's through a glass darkly. But again, we're going to talk about this book, The Empire of the Black Sun, on which the Black Sun never set. So Cynthia Chung, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So for people who may not have heard your name or some of your earlier work, do you mind just going through your background and what led you up to publishing this book, The Empire on Which the Black Sun Never Set? Um, yeah, well, my, my background is, is really more based in um, literature and, uh, and drama and philosophy. Those are actually my, my true love. Um, but I started to write uh, political articles in um, 2019, uh, largely for Strategic Culture Foundation. Um, and it was a very useful thing because I, I actually... Um, learned a lot actually by asking myself questions um, that I wanted the answers to and I would go ahead and um, read up and do research and that was my orientation in kind of sharing these kinds of insights that I would gain through uh, a lot of the reading because I think a lot of people are probably in a similar boat to mine where um, a lot of people are not that interested in politics, but we've we've kind of hit a situation today where we're in such a crisis that um, whether we like it or not, it really is our responsibility at this point to inform ourselves as to how we got into a situation today, which is which is very much um, a totalitarian oriented um, system here in the West, and so um, through. Uh, my political writings, I started to piece together certain things. And um, I decided to release this book largely because I did this uh, five-part series instigated by Russia's uh, intervention into Ukraine. There was a lot of confusion as to what was going on at that point. And so that instigated me to do um, a five-part uh, essay and um, it ended up turning into a book in terms of this larger question of um, did fascism really um, disappear as we're told after World War II? And it was really um, an issue of defending the free world against the so-called uh, communist boogeymen. And uh, it's been um, a narrative that has been repeated pretty much nonstop until today. And um, it's a really big problem because uh, from what I have found out in my research is that it is not originated in this. It's not to say that, um, you know, communism is, is innocent. 
it's actually quite complex because there are elements of communist branches that were working with uh, with the fascists. But the the root of what we find ourselves in today is very much an origination of an old idea of empire that is situated from Europe and uh, has, you know, had these various attempts to reboot, revive um, a world order based on um, a concept of empire. And uh, as soon as people, I think, become more informed that that is really the root of where our problems are situated, it's uh, something that has um, basically successfully um, taken over most of the Western democratic institutions at this point. There isn't really a true democratic functioning system at this point. It was uh, something that occurred from within. It uh, was waged in a clandestine way after World War II. Um, and the, the policies that were pushed um, post-World War II were the very same policies that the, uh, you know, people like Mussolini and Hitler were in support of in terms of, you know, the League of Nations concept of pan-Europe, which uh, we can uh, probably get into in a little bit, which was the, the, the idea behind the European Union, but this was going to be the model for the entire world. Uh, was these six regions of empire, but all overseen by the the British Empire to be the ultimate, you know, alpha in this situation. So um, with us understanding this, I think that people will be less likely to be manipulated by the kind of false um, news that's coming out right now, which is constantly blaming the, the woes of, uh, you know, the the infringement on civil liberties from, you know, the same old story that it's, it's the communists that are constantly infiltrating our system when it's clear that it actually is uh, something um, akin to what I was just talking about. Right. So the empire, your, your title is a play on the, the statement of the British empire, the empire on which the sun never set, right? They had mm -hmm. Australia, Canada, where you, I think you and your husband are, um, then India as well, South Africa. So all these after world, I mean, and you really kind of start leading up to World War II, but once World War II happens, you think that uh, the empire really didn't, didn't ever end. It just changed and morphed. Like you're a kind of a believer of, and I think you make a, a great case for it in the book that the ideals of the British empire infiltrated the U.S. after World War II, right? Would you agree with that? Yes. Um, well, the thing that people have to understand as well is that um, I'll do like a, a I guess a, a quick overview here. My my um, approach to history is that the United States um, really did put forward an economic orientation, a la you know kind of a Henry C. Carey centennial exhibition, the machine tool industry, which allowed the United States to be the most powerful country within 100 years of its um, origin. Uh, they had set up an economic system that was unique in history, and it was uh, the first time that something could really um, feasibly compete against the, the, a system of empire. So the British Empire was uh, 
saw what lay ahead for it in terms of the consequences of this and that um, the American system, which is what is referred to in this uh, school of economics, uh, the centennial exhibition that was organized by Henry C. Carey was specifically uh, to invite other countries to adopt this very policy. So it's very counter to kind of like how America is oriented to today. But they wanted to share these because the idea was that if you promoted sovereign nation states, this was going to be the cure to end imperialism. When you have countries that have a an economic independence, that that's your your best way to secure um security to secure your future um, stability and and so forth to have opportunity for your people so there was a lot of uh, partnerships that were forming um, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of uh, the 20th century with uh, the United States Germany Russia China Japan were like the really big ones but there were other countries as well and um, there's a lot of evidence to show that the first world war was instigated to break up these partnerships. Um, the system of empire was already getting bankrupt and collapsing. So after the First World War, empires also collapsed and you had uh, the, the uh, origins of like new republics. These new republics were not very strong. And uh, immediately you had Woodrow Wilson, who you started to get some really bad presidents in the United States, especially after Lincoln's assassination, you know, you had Garfield's assassination, you had McKinley's assassination, um, you had bad presidents like Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, who were for essentially a British foreign policy. And Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson was for this League of Nations concept, which was basically this idea of a reboot for uh, a world empire these six regionalizations, but with Britain at the head, and this idea of segregation as well, this idea that ethnicity should be segregated based off of like where you're supposed to be in your origin country or, or so forth. Um, right. so and like three empires died in World War One, right? So it was, I think the German Empire, Russian Empire, I think Austria-Hungarian. Austria right? yeah, so yeah. all three of those were wiped off the map, yeah. So it was really was a time of great well, change Ottoman, and yeah, the ottoman empire too like died oh, right, right before right, right. um and yeah so you had um you had a uh, this scramble to kind of because even though there was the republics there was nothing secure and it was very easy to just reboot um according to who was going to be the the main organizers and that's where you have this uh character richard kudenhoff kalergi who uh played a very big role in organizing for this League of Nations concept or, you know, this idea of what they called the United States of Europe as well. They were using this um, uh, dishonest form of language because, you know, the United States with their economic system, they were able to unite 13 colonies so that they could trade and they could have a banking system that communicated with itself efficiently so that they, they could, you know, facilitate their economic needs, which makes sense when you're within a country to, to do those things. And Germany was also adopting this with the their Zollverein. But the, the play on words and the dishonesty was that they were saying that this was thus going to be implemented for Europe. What that essentially meant was the very opposite, that instead of promoting sovereign nation states with sovereign economies, that instead you were gonna turn the countries of Europe into effectively colonies 
of a central order. It was the reverse, but they were, you know, calling it the United States of, of Europe, um, with Europe being now the, the, the big so-called country. Um, and so Kalergi was very much pushing this. This was one of the uh, components to the League of Nations concept. So this was going to be one piece of the, the chessboard that would be an empire. Kalergi uh, clearly viewed it as a sort of revival of an Austro-Hungarian empire, you could say. There's, there's also elements as well, like he catered to, to the supporters of Hitler for pan-Germanism. He was also catering to Mussolini's imperialistic views. You know, a lot of people, they, they seem to forget that the fascists were actually very clearly in support of an imperial um, outlook. And Mussolini was was uh, also looking at Africa as the the bread the slave labor for all of Europe. Um, I thought it was interesting that Kalergi was from a Crusader family yeah. and literally used the ethos and imagery of the Crusades because yeah. that's what bound all of the states of Europe and all the elites together in a concerted effort back in that time, right? The yeah, it's, it's unsettling because there's an element of what you can call Christian fascism in uh, terms of uh, how Kalergi and a lot of uh, people who were in support of this kind of um, uh, Christian fascism, they, they all uh, very much romanticized this concept of the Crusades. And uh, the Vatican was, um, you know, involved in this under Pope Pius the the Twelfth as well, in support of, of fascism to the point where Kalergi even says in his autobiography, because Pope Pius the Twelfth never criticized uh, fascist Italy. He's like, why would uh, Pope Pius the Twelfth do that? Uh, uh, Catholicism is inherently fascist. Um, so not to say that that is true, right? But there was a, a lot of Catholics that were actually, you know, working with the, the fascists compared to, I guess you could look at other branches. Um, and the crusade um, orientation played a big part in this. Um, I don't know if we'll have time to go over it um, in this interview, but there was this whole thing too of like how the fascists were involved in um, bringing about the British mandate of Palestine, which, you know, clearly uh, set off a whole bunch of problems, you know, for the Middle East and again had a, a crusade type um, connection to, to this, but with a very long-term orientation, of course. Um, but yes, Kalergi had the crusade symbol for his pan-Europe flag. And there's uh, later on, he puts the stars around this uh, crusade symbol with a, a blue background. And the, the European Union flag seems to have taken the, the star circle concept from Kalergi, but they don't. It's like almost like the crusade symbol is there, but hidden. You know, under, right, under right. blue, it's, it's like right. unspoken. <laughs> but, in but, the original yeah. circle, it was the cross of Christ on the blue son of Apollo, or whatever I think you wrote. But exactly, yeah, it was yeah. an interesting imagery. But he also was looking at, like you said, Zionism, pan-Islamism, so these kind of pan movements of trying to put larger groups together, uh, pan-Arabism and stuff like that, were his idea of trying to get the Europeans to fuse together, which eventually happened, right? I mean, not in his lifetime, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a there. There's like a good idea behind uniting, you know, uh, for instance, the Arab people to uh, a common cause. Like, you know, for instance, I think that Nasser was right to say that um, because 
the problem with the Middle East uh, is that the the British largely, the French as well, they, they came in, right? This is what uh, the Sykes-Picot carving up of the Middle East created. But they, they decided how the countries were going to be split up in the, the Middle East so that they had um, certain kinds of um, false monarchies that they put over the areas that had the resources, the oil. And they, they um, had like other types, uh, allowed other types of, uh, I guess, formation of uh, governments in other areas. And so, you know, what you had was that all of the heavy resource areas had these like British puppet monarchs that were sitting over top of them. And Nasser was just making the point that this is the resources of all of the people of uh, Arabia and uh, it should be used for the benefit of the of the people, which I don't think is a is a bad idea. But there's been also um, dangerous ideas of of pen whatever, which has been used in to uh, to instigate extremism and and radicalization. Um, but uh, in order to understand any of of this, really, like people have to understand Gladio, which I guess we like we took we. Uh, skipped a few steps because that's further into the into the book. But I wanted to make a point too that I start off the book explaining British fascism because um, you know I think a lot of people know that you had Edward the Eighth who was very openly pro uh, Hitler, and you, I don't think a lot of people actually know that David Lloyd George, who was a prime minister during the Sykes-Picot time, during the the establishment of the British Mandate of Palestine, was also very openly uh, pro-fascist. And then you had the notorious Oswald Mosley. Um, but the reality of the situation was that a good chunk of the supposed allies in Britain were also um, for the fascist system. And the, the, the scary thing is that many people within Europe, high level ranking people and institutions were actually pro-fascist, including within the United States as well. And so there was really, um, you can see there's a level of arrogance that it was just going to happen. Um, and one of the, a clear indication for this is James Burnham, who is the, the spiritual father of neoconservatism for the United States. He wrote the managerial revolution. He um, did not prophesize the, the technocratic H.G. Uh, Wells, you know, scientific fascism. He was basically an acolyte of Bertrand Russell. So he, he was taking his orders from him, but he play acted as a, a Trotskyist uh, uh, right-hand man. It's a very interesting uh, story, but he, um, when he was writing the managerial revolution, he's basically telling Americans, hey, we just have to accept that fascism is here to stay, basically, right? Um, because they were just so confident that this was going to happen. It was going to succeed. Um, and It, it was hadn't earned itself a kind of a negative, pejorative uh, perception at that time. So fascism was still it was kind of like more edgy prior to World War II. I think then people saw it's it's downsides right i mean so well, i think that yeah, when yeah. he wrote it in 41 um it was still pretty controversial and there were a lot of people who criticized him rightfully so of uh because there was a lot of people like bertrand russell was also saying like why even resist like we shouldn't we shouldn't go to arms against them and if you look at how the first uh the second world war was started you have like the first six months that are called the phony war 
because there was not actually any fighting and the fighting only started when uh, Germany entered France. Um, it was very clear that they, they, they wanted to, they didn't want to resist it. They wanted like as quick and as painless of a transition as possible to fascism. And, and Kalergi clearly complains about the anti-fascist resistance, you know, in, in his autobiography, um, because he feels that, you know, the war wouldn't have been necessary if people had just accepted what was, you know, good for them. Um, but that's the, the reality. It was really Roosevelt and uh, Stalin who um, pushed back on this in any kind of serious way. I challenge anyone to say who else, you know, was instrumental in that. And uh, Roosevelt had a lot of um, pushback. Uh, Churchill had delayed um, the United States entry into the war quite a bit. And then he also had a lot of opposition within the United States as well. Even to this day, it's, it's weird. Like people are critical of Roosevelt you know, entering the Second World War, and yet they're not supporters of Hitler. And it's like, well, what did you think was was going to happen? Like, it was, it was a, a situation where if the United States hadn't come in, and you know, the United States was instrumental in giving the resources for Russia to fight the uh, the Wehrmacht, everyone thought that the Wehrmacht was going to win within three weeks of uh, you know fighting the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union would not have been able to resist for years if it wasn't for Roosevelt sending a bunch of uh, like hundreds of uh, pieces of equipment that the, the Soviet Union required to defend itself. Um, so, yeah, that's not really talked about. But then when World War II was uh, was one, um, immediately the Nazis were brought in to NATO they were brought into the surveillance structure. So in West Germany, they had Reinhard Gellin in charge of the Western German security apparatus, intelligence apparatus, a high-ranking, you know, Nazi who was who was uh, in charge of of overseeing intelligence for the Nazis. And uh, you had Franz Six, who was uh, responsible for the the plan for the Nazi British invasion. He was put into Germany. Like okay. all of these, you have Otto Skorzeny too, who was put in charge of the secret armies of NATO. Um, and uh, he was also played a big role in um, also using Gladio uh, training in the Middle East. So a lot of these like later on terrorists, like from the Muslim Brotherhood and so forth, they actually were trained directly by Nazis wow, <laughs> to continue their kind of terrorist tactics within the Middle East. You had um, a support from uh, a, many people within the Middle East, because even to this day, there's confusion uh, from them that the Nazis were going to free them from imperialism. But if you look at everything that the Nazis did, they broke their promises constantly, and they were for a clearly view of a German empire. And it was just that they had ne they didn't ever get to the point of reaching the Middle East, but they would have clearly screwed over the Middle East people like they did with the Ukrainian people. Stepan Bandera and Mykola Lebed worked uh, with the Nazis and they thought that, you know, Stepan Bandera thought that he would be the new leader of Ukraine as long as he, you know, 
bowed the knee to Emperor Hitler and they put him in a concentration camp and like they they killed a, a bunch of their members and so forth. And still today, Ukraine like acts like that didn't happen. It, it was like the Soviets who who took away their freedom and everything. Um, yeah, and so Bandera was a, a genocidal maniac, killed tens of thousands of people responsible, I think, for killing Poles and Jews and and just Ukrainians who disagreed with him. Even just Ukrainians who didn't want his view and that the OUN ended up splitting, you know, between Stepan Bandera and Nikola Levin and, and they, they were also fighting each other. So it was like it was it was uh, warlords, you know, like it, it was not for the best interest of, of the people. But the thing is, is that the CIA, you know, Stepan Bandera, he eventually was killed. Um, but Mikola Lebed was really propped up by the CIA through uh, aerodynamic. Um, there's been a lot of declassified uh, records of uh, the, the Nazis and the Japanese uh, fascists in the late 90s. So that now we know about this aerodynamic operation from CIA, where they were using Mikola Lebed to in, to continue to pump this kind of propaganda and this kind of radicalization into the Ukraine uh, throughout the Cold War years to with the intention always to use Ukraine as a Cold War weapon against the uh, against Russia. They never cared about the Ukrainians and Mikola Lebed as well. He attacked Ukrainian people as well that were not Jewish, that were not of Russian ethnicity. Um, so it has nothing even to do with like a loyalty to Ukrainian people. It's just about being a warlord. It's about power uh, for those types of people. But they are romanticized and uh, the history is revised and uh, made to look like these people, you know, never cooperated with the Nazis, which is clearly provable that that they did and and so forth. There were a lot of Ukrainian people who were on board, and even Romania too, were on board with Nazis. There were black guards and all kinds of significant elements of that society. No question about it. It's not, and, and then you can take it all the way to the present day, right? I mean, there's still this Azov battalion. You list other groups too, but uh, it's uh, there's still. I mean, when when Stalin says he's fighting Nazis, he's literally fighting Nazis on the. Uh, that were that are there on the eastern part of Ukraine, right? Stalin or or Putin? I'm sorry, did I? I meant Putin. <laughs> when Putin says wrong person, when yeah. Putin says that he's fighting national socialists, he really is, isn't he? Yeah, and like again, that's the he is he is fighting Nazis. Um, and uh, what what people need to understand too is this whole uh, labeling of national socialism. Um, I don't know if we have time to go into it, but the Fabian Society is very important in understanding um, the reason why people get so confused is because they don't understand the permeation technique. And the Fabian Society is a, a, a very big player next to the round table, which, you know, set up the Chatham House, the, uh, the British um, Institute for implementing a lot of these ideas. The Council for Foreign Relations is the American branch of this of this British institution, and um, they basically are the grand strategists of Britain that are were very very smart. And these policies have continued to play the dominating role in what shapes uh, world politics today. But the Fabian Society had called themselves Marxist Darwinists. Um, 
initially, right? Like Bertrand Russell was talking about, you know, pro-Marxist ideas and everything. He later on became an avid anti-Marxist, as you see also with people like James Burnham, Max Eastman, like a lot of these really famous American Trotskyists, they all were like mentored by John Dewey, who is in connection with Bertrand Russell and all of this. And then they all later become avid anti-communist to the point where they are the most extreme in their McCarthyist ideas of like what should happen to uh, communists. And this is obviously not just a coincidence that it was a game. They were never actually Marxists to begin with. And uh, you have people like Georges, not, I'm not defending Marxism, by the way, but they were turning Marxism into something that was even further weaponized as a, a fascist imperialist tool. Um, and you have uh, Georges Sorel, who was one of the first to like, he was basically the um, a huge influence on fascist Italy. And he was the one who revised Marxism such that socialism could be fit into a fascist construct. That was like a, a very open intention of his. And so that's why you see as well, Calergi, the guy for the crusade for pan-Europe, he was not only um, trying to organize fascists around this like idea of how to go about strategically reinstitutionalizing world empire, but he was also going um, to Marxist to support this. Um, the Second International, you have like uh, Trotsky, Bakunin, Prince Kropotkin. These types of players were actually all playing um on the same team as the fascists. You also had communists who were actually fighting uh, fascists like in Italy and Greece. And these were the, the communists that were attacked later on by NATO's secret armies. Um, and there were terrorist attacks that were launched on uh, the European people by NATO's secret armies. This is well documented at this point. A lot of this information came out at the beginning of the, the, the 20th cent 21st century, um, you know, in the early 2000s. And uh, Daniel Ganser's book, uh, NATO Secret Armies, is a, a very extensive overview of, of this, the reality was that you had these secret armies after World War II with uh, Nazis and, and fascists also being a huge component of this. NATO was also run, this, the Central Eastern Command of NATO was run by former Nazis for 16 years straight. Um, these were used um, to defend the free world against communism, but we now know it's uh, acknowledged that these terrorist attacks were not actually launched by the communists, but were actually launched by uh, NATO secret armies. So um, there were false flag attacks, right? Well, it wasn't clarified. And there were ones all over Italy, Belgium. There were a lot of them, right? Yeah, well, Italy has what is termed the 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 years of lead. Um, it was like twenty years. It's probably over twenty years of this nonstop terror. And um, the OPC branch of the CIA, um, which was set up by Frank Wisner and Alan Dulles, who are again, I go over in the book that they were clearly working with the the Nazis and and the Italian fascists. But um, they set up this rogue branch. The Frank Church Senate Committee hearings even um, put this on record that the OPC was uh, uh, originated largely to interfere in the elections of Europe so that after World War II, they would not tolerate the, a democratic decision to support anything left-leaning and that it, 
they were uh, instrumenting these kinds of terrorist attacks, blaming it on uh, the, the communists in order to justify um, uh, far right uh, support. And you have, um, you know, Operation Northwood as well that was uh, brought forward by General Lemnitzer in the United States. Kennedy rejected it, but people can look it up. It's on Wikipedia, um, where he was also proposing this very same thing for the United States, where he was saying the uh, the United States should uh, attack its citizens and its military. Some, you know, as like uh, mock attacks and some as real attacks on its citizens and blame it on the Cubans to justify a Cuban invasion. And you can look it up on Wikipedia. Like these were actual things that were going on in the case of North, the Northwood plot, Kennedy rejected it, but it's not to say that those things were not happening. You know, COINTELPRO, um, you know, is involved in a lot of these types of things as well in terms of uh, creating um, these these problems and then blaming it on on other agencies and it's the same game that we have uh that we see playing today but it's uh essentially the fabian technique where you have um you know you you go into a grouping and you you basically uh you know break it apart and you you divide it you splinter it um and you try to recruit the most extreme faction of it uh to your cause um so a lot of these what looks like to be you know like you have like nazis italian fascists you have a uh, wall street city of london type people you have the imperialists like churchill uh leo amory um and then you have like uh terrorists uh and so forth but they're they're all ultimately working for the same agenda um i mean it, it is fascinating just sorry to interrupt but I, I really was intrigued by that passage you had in your book where in belgium the the gladio team there was involved in blackmail sexual blackmail really dark stuff and it was leading up to the time right of the dutro right i think dutro was late 80s so you could possibly see an overlap between these blackmail groups. And there were violent things that happened in Belgium. Like somebody walked in from one of these Gladio groups and shot a bunch of people in like a, a shopping mall, if I remember correctly. But it is fascinating that they were using those techniques even before Dutro. So I wonder if Dutro and some of his cronies were involved in something like that too. But yeah, also I also did research on a Gladio group in the UK called combat 18 where one of these nazis was literally a member of that he was name was david myatt so they did exist mm -hmm. they just didn't have the information on just like you said yeah and i mean you don't have to call yourself a nazi to be like a fascist imperialist like churchill was a, a fascist imperialist but um you know france played a the the origins of of nato for instance nato's um insignia the compass rose comes from the, the, the French secret army um, that was uh, exposed two years before NATO's formation. And uh, there are definitely occult elements to uh, the Gladio operation, which volume two is going to go more into the occult aspects of uh, this story. Um, the volume one was focusing much more on like just having a geopolitical kind of grounding before going into that because it can be quite confusing um, and uh, disorienting if you don't have that. But, you know, 
De Gaulle, I think, is a very good case study to show how bad uh, the Gladio, um, NATO's secret army, became, and NATO itself, where, you know, NATO and Gladio, you have, like, the CIA, MI6, the OAS, which is the rogue, you know, French intelligence branch, uh, they were all trying to have de Gaulle assassinated. And, it, it, you know, it reached a point where de Gaulle kicked NATO out of France. And uh, he said, you know, basically, France has to have control over this thing that the headquarters were in France or get out. And that's why, you know, NATO ended up moving to to Belgium. And then Belgium, you know, started to have all of these weird problems like you were describing. That's and it's interesting, sorry to interrupt, but it was interesting. Another aspect of your book, what I learned is he knew himself in the context of JFK. Like he said, that could have been me, right? Or something to that effect. Yeah, like exactly. He, I think his assassination attempt was 1962. Well, and, and there was a OA, OAS member, uh, Jean Souetre. Well, there's been over 30, there was over 30 assassination attempts against de Gaulle. But um, Jean Souetre, who was a, an OA, a prominent OAS um a member, he was in Dallas, Texas, the 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 day of Kennedy's uh, assassination, and they, you know, basically let him go to Mexico um, without any kind of, you know, withholding or interrogation. Um, and de Gaulle was basically saying, "Yeah, this is the same grouping that was uh, trying to get rid of me." And um, I go through. Uh, in detail, like the, the 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 branches that were involved in this uh, for Kennedy's um, murder, and uh, so it's I mean it's, it wasn't just Kennedy though there were like uh, there were several democratically elected leaders within um, Europe that were assassinated or um, they had soft coups against them, which are character assassinations. That's very similar to again what we have going on today, where you are dishonestly accused of being. Uh, like in bed with the Soviets or whatever, um, so that people then, you know, look at you as a problem when in fact you are actually just holding um, with, you're upholding dem a democratic constitution. And that is the problem because they wanted a fascist totalitarian system. So it wasn't communism, really. It was this idea of sovereign nation states at the end of the day that was enemy number one. And they were using these excuses. They were falsely labeling uh, many people. I mean, look at McCarthyism. I think most people recognize that McCarthyism w was attacking a lot of people who were not like communists. Um, and it was because you were saying things that they that the state didn't want you to say. And so you could just be labeled whatever. It's very similar to, to today. You can be just labeled whatever. And then just like that, Whatever you have to say doesn't count, no matter what the evidence you present to support your case. So it becomes increasingly hard to expose what is the the corruption, the scandal, if you're silencing all of these people with these like very lazy labels. True, no doubt. Yeah. So, oh yeah, the it's happening today. Character assassination and blackmails all over. I mean, the whole Epstein thing was a huge blackmail operation. Successful, I might, I might add, too. I think a lot of these people who are around today are totally blackmailed. But the assassinations of that time were really uh, were astonishing. How many heads of state were killed, even in the U.S., but even around that time, worldwide, Lumumba, um, attempted assassinations on Castro over and over. 
definitely Allende. So it was a brutal, much more brutal, much more brutal. And a lot of those were for fascist goals, right? So that agenda was still there, even even post war, post World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think people might be interested to know that this also this idea of uh, uh, a technocratic system, um, a system based off of scientific fascism, was also something discussed very early on in the 1920s and even earlier. And that H.G. Uh, Wells, the Fabian Society, again, plays a prominent role in this. H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, um, Oswald Mosley himself said in writing that he was using H.G. Wells's view of scientific fascism as what should be implemented, you know, in a, a post-World War II world. So people should um, learn from this that, like, where we're at today is not some new foreign intervention into how our Western construct works, but rather what the reality of the situation is, is that after World War II, we were told that uh, we had defeated fascism, but in reality, the fascists were allowed to be reintegrated into all of the top-down structure of the Western sphere. And there was... um, so they had the institutions and then you had this clandestine uh, silent war and uh, they used the excuse of a cold war um, to justify what we did find out about. Um, and there's a lot that we still, you know, don't know about these sorts of things. So where we're, where we are today, people should really not regard it as something new or that like, Oh, China has all of a sudden controlled every little element within our society and they're they're infiltrating the elections and so forth when you look at the uh the the historical trend of anglo-america this is precisely what they've been doing for uh a whole century at this point and we would be very foolish to not uh recognize that problem from within um and if we fail to recognize that problem from within we're, we're going to obviously uh, suffer for that, uh, for that failure. It's going to be a harder um, future than it, it needs to be for us. Like the solution is actually quite simple. If the people were to just recognize the source of how the system has been kind of taken over so that it is this, this totalitarian system at this point that does not respect civil liberties. But The nice thing about the United States is that it does have a positive aspect of its history that we can um, we can learn from, especially the economic orientation, right, of Roosevelt's New Deal, for instance. There's a reason why Keynes, who was a pro-fascist, tried to have his own version of a New Deal, which he said himself when it was published um, in uh, Nazi Germany, that his version was uh, best suited for a totalitarian system. This was to offset what Roosevelt was uh, trying to work towards. Um, so there's the United States still is a model for the economic solutions against empire. Um, we just have to revisit those things. We have to rem- remind ourselves about what that is. And I think that once we understand what is a proper economic orientation, which again is also base that's centered on how you define humankind, where the individual is a sacred, uh, useful, productive uh, element of society that can that can increase wealth. That's the real wealth 
of a country is its individual, the potential for good of a, an individual, rather than the system of empire that looks at the uh, at the individual as a problem, and that population growth is a problem. We need to promote depopulation. This is why you have things like uh, Yuval Harari talking about the problem of useless eaters in an increasingly technocratic society and so forth. Um, the reason why they feel that they can justify these increasingly uglier and uglier ideas like healthcare, we don't have the money to give you treatment um, or we don't have the technology, which is not true either, to give you treatment. So how about you accept euthanasia instead? This is increasingly the sort of line that we're being given, all of these excuses for why we can't um, have like the basics for a decent human you know beings you know the expectation of what you would have for a decent life and these this is all false scarcity it's all um and it's 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 a false situation of terror it's a false situation of scarcity and if people were to recognize that you could so easily exit out of this box that's like increasingly getting smaller and smaller on people if they could recognize that. It's true. Climate change, all that stuff, all the you'll eat bugs, be happy, the propaganda. Like you're there. We're right back at some kind of weird fascism too. Um, we're at about 45 minutes. Cynthia, do you have time for a few questions? Yeah, sure. Gameplay asks, did anyone working with the Nazis after World War II take a step back and consider what they were actually doing? Do you know? Um, as in, like, was there were there any Nazis who who then became outspoken uh, anti Nazis? I don't I don't know of any, but I mean, it's kind of like, you know, no no one can freely talk about the the the, the child sex rings, right? That. Uh, that were the pedophilia rings, like anyone who was like part of that, it's like very hard to find any, like there's a lot of people that seem to want to, you know, come forward on, on these types of things, but there are certain subjects that are just so tightly, you know, controlled that um, you wouldn't get very far. Oftentimes um, these people, you know, are probably assassinated. Um, but in terms of a prominent Nazi uh, that attempted to to blow the lid off of this, I'm not aware of any any anyone. Yeah, the Dutro, like the, there were like 25 deaths around the whole Dutro case, people being buried in gardens and stuff like that. Um, we steals Plato Snakes asks, "Are you aware that Gavin Newsom's father was a pal of Otto Scorsini?" No, I didn't. Oh, interesting. Um, do you have any insight into the occultism of the Nazis? Do you, have you address that? Like, I know the Sonnenrad is huge. Was it Babelsberg, Himmler's kind of SS center? I mean, do well, you, have you? It's a right now. I'm I'm like in the process of of looking into it, but because I haven't actually like put together uh, a paper myself, and that's like when a, my ideas are the most organized is once I actually try to compose something i'm going to refrain from talking about it right now because it's it's such a massive subject like i've it's one of those subjects that i've read the most without being ready still to write about it because gotcha. there's just so much to it but again volume two is going to focus on that and hopefully within like um, a month or two i will start putting out my first um, papers that will be talking about uh, nazi occultism before the book is even released 
and that's going to be on your Substack, correct? I uh, yeah, I, I publish also with like you know Strategic Culture Foundation okay. um, and uh, you know some other outlets sometimes, but all of my writing you can find on my Substack page through a glass darkly. Yeah. Um, and then, what are your thoughts on occult Duganism? Do you know anything about that? No, I I don't. Great. And then, let's see. I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot of extra stuff in this book. Like, you have a lot of information on a variety of, of uh, different subjects we didn't even get into. Heroin in, in Florida, fascism, mockingbird. People would be interested in reading about that. And a lot on... on uh, a lot on Ukraine too. A lot of stuff, current stuff, things of current importance. But where is the best place for people to get uh, the empire on which the black sun never set? Well, it's uh, presently available on Amazon. It will soon be available on Barnes and Nobles. And for people who want to um, not go through that, those outlets, you can buy the PDF directly uh, off of me. And uh, you can just go to my Substack page again through Glass Darkly and uh, write in um, asking for the, the PDF version. Excellent. So you can buy directly from the author. And I'll put a link to, to that um, Substack as well. But... Uh, Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Again, I highly recommend this book, The Empire on Which the Black Sun Never Set, The Birth of International Fascism and Anglo-American Foreign Policy by Cynthia Chung, just published November 6, 2022. This is the first volume of two volumes. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, take care. Stay there.